Tell us the word. The word. The word. Switch the bracelet on. The word. The word. The word. Tell it more! I told you, tell it more! Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 22, where we are looking at the season 2 episode, Hostage. Yay! You excited for this one, Richard? It'll be an interesting discussion. We've got a lot to chat about. This one was written by Alan Pryor, who had previously written Horizon, which, look, we had some good things to say about that and some bad things to say about that, but it clearly was written by somebody outside the production crew, and I think we're seeing that again this episode. On the other hand, though, it was directed by Via Lorimer, who is very much becoming a staple director mm. of the series. Has been there right from the start. First broadcast on the 27th of February, 1979. The ratings for this, 7.8 million. So a big jump from Big last jump time. up from yep. the 7 million last time, yeah. So we'll get into this. This is my episode to take us through. So, Richard, we'll start with your quick views. Yes. What did you think of Hostage? I'll preface this by saying, look, Neither of us really enjoyed it, but we are not going to spend the next 50-odd minutes kicking it to death. No. But we will start with that as our opening position. (laughs) It is not a favourite of either of us. I think we can say that. No. Having said that, look, if you squint a bit, there are some positives (laughs) to find. There is a very good scene with Serverland. And look, the opening stuff is not too bad. I think it's really once they arrive at X-Bar that we really start encountering some issues. Yeah, look, I had similar views to you. I mean, I've always been aware that this is one that doesn't have a good reputation. Mm. And certainly, going back to my first watching of it, I knew this was a weaker episode of the season. And I don't think most people would disagree with that. If we're wrong and this is a favourite of yours, please let us know on our social media. Yeah, I was actually about to say, did you find anything in what you watched to change that view? (laughs) Look... Because I didn't, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, when I prepare for this podcast, I think very similar to you, Richard... The first thing I do is just do a complete uninterrupted watching of the episode. Just let it wash over me. Do I enjoy it? What performances stand out? And when I did this, I did really struggle with the episode. However, then I go back and I do the sort of the the, the stop-start, make notes, look in detail, assess and analyse it. And when I was doing that, particularly with a mindset of, look, I'm going to find good stuff to say about this episode, I did find good stuff in there. Mm. And, And I think it's very similar to the stuff that you were talking about before. And it does get weaker as it goes along, which is a shame because that's the main plot. So, yeah, look, there there are some little nuggets, some little gemstones in there that we'll talk about. We'll also talk about what we don't think works and why. And I guess to uh, add context to that whole discussion, there is a pretty important production point that we do need to address before we go on. And in some ways, it makes kicking this a bit difficult. Yes. Because there is actually quite a sad story to this one. Look, I'm sure most fans are aware of it, but... The actor they originally cast to play Ashton, Duncan Lamont, passed away between the location filming and when they did the studio recording, which obviously threw a bit of a pall over the Mm. whole production. They did obviously recast uh, with John Abenary, but it meant they had to go back and refilm a lot of the location work, which I suspect probably put this one under more time pressure than usual. Yes, and I think even though the studio stuff didn't have to be reshot, there is absolutely no doubt that, particularly from the director's point of view, the 
pressure to just get this one made, yep. redo the whole of the location filming, which is actually some of the most substantial filming we've had for quite a while. It is. I mean, look, you can see obviously where it's been spliced. Yes. X-Bar is suddenly in sunshine and then in mist, but <laughs> yes. So yes, there were some very genuine production problems with this. That yep. And as I say, our job is not to kick it, it's to you know, talk about what works and what doesn't and, and why we think that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't really have distinct A, B, and C plots no. throwing the way through it. It is actually, for Blake 7, a very linear story. Mm-hmm. And so we'll work through it in a fairly linear way. So what I've essentially done is put this together as three acts. Yep. A couple of scenes I've shifted around to talk about them in a more coherent fashion, but basically Act 1, which is the space battle, Act 2, which is X-Bar, and Act 3, which I've called Travis. Mm. So let's start with Act 1. Yes. So Act 1, I've called the space battle, and... I must admit, this is actually a kind of a cool little idea. Some of the dialogue in there is not good. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But the concept actually is quite cool. When I was just doing the initial, you know, to get the vibe of the story, yeah. this was actually not that bad. To be honest, I found when I went back through it in more detail, it is actually a bit sloppily put together in places. But I dare say we'll probably tease that out a bit perhaps as we go through it. And that's a theme I think we're going to come back to a lot. It is what we were just saying before, that feeling that there must have been huge pressure to yeah. just get this in. You, you get no sense of retakes being done. Everything is sort of tonally at variance. And even the dialogue isn't quite up to standard. That opening shot where you get the whole quiet, isn't it? Mm. It's just so cliched. Like, yep. Chris Boucher, you're better than this. <laughs> quiet, isn't it? Yes. But, of course, the quiet is immediately broken. Yes, we had some very cool model work here. So, essentially, what we're talking about is where the Federation decides they're going to take out the Liberator. They've clearly given up trying to capture it. Yeah. They just want Blake eliminated. Mm. And they send 20 pursuit ships after yep. it. And basically just try and use the tactics of, we'll just swamp this just thing. Just wolf pack it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a kind of a very cool idea. Perhaps emblematic of this episode overall, there's some great stuff and some negative stuff in mm-hmm. here. Some of the model work they do is really good. Yep. Really quite impressive. Then there's also the other stuff where they've very clearly just taken stock footage. For example, you get the Liberators accelerating away straight out of Redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it gets to fly past the planet Cephalon once again. So, Which, which I think is also X-Bar later in the episode, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so in between sort of the reusing of stock footage, there is some nice model shots. They simply represent the 20 Pursuit Ships with lights on the scanner, which I think works. Mm. Something I noted here, just as a minor point, is that once again, in a crisis, it's Jenna who takes control of the ship and not Zen. And something else that I noticed during this part as well, a nice directorial touch, you actually see the camera and the flight deck all pitch. As they start to manoeuvre. Yeah, which we haven't seen much of before. Probably on the more negative side, there is lots of people throwing themselves around, lots of explosions going off, obviously, to simulate battle damage. Yes, a couple of which I'm sure are repeated from Redemption as well. Uh, quite possibly. And again, what I was saying, it was a bit sloppy. You see Jenna pick herself up off the floor, run to her chair, and then see her do it again. <laughs> not not 10 seconds later. Exactly. Some of the model shots are very good, but there are also some slightly wonky ones, I think, where the pursuit ships are running along the wire. Yes. And there is the shot where they're setting off the explosion. You've got the rear view of the Liberator. They actually haven't put the green globe on straight. <laughs> <laughs> That is being very picky, but it was noticeable when I went back through it. I mentioned before this is the first time we've seen this Wolfpack strategy from the Federation. It's interesting to see Blake's reaction to it. In the past, Blake has been very canny about 
using strategy and mm. manoeuvres and that sort of thing to get out of these problems. On this occasion, he literally just defaults to just run. Yeah, just, just floor it. Just floor it and get us out of here. Which is interesting to see Blake not panicking, but just saying, we can't do this. The only chance we have is get out of here. No. In some ways, running away has really been their consistent strategy all the way along. You never actually see them really stand and fight the Federation ships. But no, here it is very much, let's just get as much distance between them as we can. Yeah, the Liberator takes 12 plasma bolt strikes, Mm -hmm. which takes up half the energy reserves, which really just goes to show how much that ship really could take. Yes. I did have the note there that uh, the force wall control is still on that front panel, (laughs) and operating it is still Paul Darrow's job. Yes. (laughs) No sound effect this time, though. Oh, no, that's true. Mm. One of the reasons why the Federation thinks their strategy can work is that they have now also invented a detector shield. Yes. Which is a nice example of Blake 7 continuity in that if you just watch this episode, you can kind of work out what a detector shield is and Mm. how it works. But if you are an ongoing fan and a regular viewer, that's a nice little callback to a few weeks ago when they had it in trial. Yes, and they then make the note that the one on the Liberator at the moment is broken. Yes. So, yeah, very, very nicely done in terms of continuity. Mm. So, look, I enjoyed this. I remember the first time I saw this episode many, many years ago being quite excited by this because we don't get a lot of these bigger space battles in there. And I guess like any television show, the tension is undermined by the fact that we know this episode goes for 50 minutes, so they're not going to blow up the crew in 10 minutes. No, indeed. But it is very nicely done. Unfortunately, though, it really doesn't have any bearing on the rest of the story. This could just be added on to any episode. I guess... And maybe for later on when we do the end of episode discussion, there is maybe a point where it leads into, we see Serverland obviously waiting for reports of what's happened. Yes. The fact that it happened in a certain area helps to validate the message that Serverland gets later. later on. So so they link it in a very, very tangential way, but Mm. essentially once the space battle's over from Blake and the Liberator's point of view, it's over. Yes. There is no bearing on it. It's just something that happened and, oh, well, I guess that was a Tuesday. You know? (laughs) (laughs) We have a new random space commander and obviously part of the role of this character is just someone needs to lead the attack. Mm. But I think we're also now starting to see Serverland's life without Travis and that although she had to get rid of Travis, there is that sense that she misses him because nobody else is really quite as good at their job as he used to be. No, although having said that, I mean, this bloke gets a lot closer to seriously damaging or destroying Liberator than anybody else has. As he said, he registered 12 plasma bolt strikes yes. against the ship. And I mean, he really only loses because the Liberator is just so much faster than the Federation ships, he can just punch a hole and just go. Yes, and they can't turn around fast enough to get into it yet. She's flown right through us. How many hits registered? 12. What's her damage? Cannot specify. But there must have been a heavy drain in the neutron energy banks. How much our computer cannot determine. What's our course and speed? 109, time to store 20. 20? Are you sure? Computer confirms. Then we can't possibly catch her. There is probably also the note, and I know other commentators have picked up on this, the episode appears to show that he is actually sitting directly behind the Liberator with a clear shot at the rear of the ship and Mm. doesn't take it. So look, whether that has a bearing on it as well... Possibly. Another note that I noticed here, just from everyone's point of view, is he says to Zen, can we withstand an attack of this magnitude? Mm. And it's another example of the way that Avon approaches life and death situations. He wants to know, what's the probability I'm going to survive? Not, I hope, or not I feel, just I have a 62% chance of getting out of this. Yep. Or as Han Solo would say, never quote me the odds. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I thought it was a nice, cool few minutes. Character touch, yeah. 
We then cut away to Servaline basically waiting for the outcome of this battle. Mm. And Jacqueline Pierce, again, does a really good job of showing Servaline as nervous and agitated mm. and really knowing that her credibility is on the line with this one without ever allowing her character to lose dignity or respect. Yep. And that's heightened even more when she's told that Councillor Joban is coming in. And again, the way Pierce does this is really, really good. She has that moment of, okay, I'm kind of nervous. Okay, I know this is going to be a confrontational and a difficult meeting. I'll have a quick swig of uh, whatever that green stuff he's drinking is. My spice cream de mon or whatever <laughs> that's it is. Right. Or chartreuse. Yeah. And then you physically see Servalan compose herself. Puts on a game face. Put, yep. Yeah, puts on the game face and greets Councillor Joban for what is probably the best scene of the episode. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> Councillor Joban. Supreme Commander. An honour, Councillor. All right, what is definitely the best scene of the episode? Uh, look, partly because Kevin Stoney is in it, and he's just fantastic, and we'll talk about his pedigree in our regular segments, but yeah. he has got a very good pedigree. Yeah, he is really good in this. But again, it's this ongoing continuity that we are seeing built up in the series mm. where Servalan has previously been able to sheet the blame for Blake's continued evasion mm. onto Travis. And she's been through the whole, you know, Travis is relieved of duty. Then she's had the fixed trial to get rid of Travis and mm. just move all the blame to him. Now that Travis is out of the way, she's really starting to feel the pressure. And that's why I think she is so harsh with the space captain. Yes. Uh, when he has to report that he's failed. Because, and maybe extrapolating a little bit, we're told in trial that there was going to be an inquiry into her handling of the Blake affair. Yes. Now, without Travis probably as the star witness, that inquiry either didn't happen or clearly was inconclusive enough that they didn't actually do anything to her. Yes. But... To sort of borrow a line from trial, slime sticks. And there are now obviously serious questions being asked, including now of people who have supported her in the past, such as Councillor Jobane. Yes. And he is clearly coming to sort of do the, well, I am not having questions asked of me. You need to fix this now. Yes. At the end of the day, if it's a choice between you or me, it's you. Indeed. Servalan here does respond with bluster. Mm. And really, there's a lot of sort of verbal sparring, but she knows that she's back into a corner and she can't defend herself. No, and it is really much their promise. Yes, of course, we'll get him. Yes. It failed then. I knew you were well informed, but... All that logistical output. And it failed. It almost succeeded. (sighs) Almost succeeded is not really good enough, is it? Did I suggest that it was? Some members of the council are concerned that many of our citizens now know of Blake's activities. And those are the renegade Travis. But there have been no public space casts on either Travis or Blake. People talk, Servalan. There's no way of stopping them. This is a major breach of security. The punishment is total. Who are these people who have been talking? I want their names, Councillor. All sorts of citizens from Alphas to Labour grades know of Blake's defiance of the Federation. Another little touch here is that we had just seen Servalan have a drink privately, so she clearly is you know, having a few drinks on the side. Just a nerve steadier. That's right. And then when Joban has one to uh, blur the edges, <laughs> she makes a point of doing the whole, no, I like to keep my edges sharp. Like We know she's been drinking, <laughs> but she doesn't want to exactly. do it in front of the guy. Like no, I, of I just love the way that's done. One other note I did have just for this section... It's mentioned that Travis is now known as an outlaw amongst the general population, which yes. implies that this is some time perhaps after trial. It does. And it again does that world building we've often talked about, about those 
chattering classes out there mm. who clearly are, if not in a rebellious state, they're clearly a little bit sceptical about mm. what the Federation tells them. They probably are aware that their state is not quite as perfect as yep. they sometimes want it to be. And there is this gossip. And let's face it, if you can have a bit of a gossip about the Supreme Commander losing her lieutenant, mm. that's probably pretty good gossip. I love the forced formality here, you know, the Council of Joban, Supreme Commander. The, the, <laughs> the formality you have when you're basically telling each other to get stuff politely. Pretty much. <laughs> For what is a very small scene, it is really, really effective. And mm-hmm. once again, if you're just watching the episode as a casual viewer, it's a kind of a nice scene. If you've been watching this for now 21 episodes, there's a whole lot more going there on. There is. And it really does reward the regular viewer. It does. Potentially see the end result of this confrontation later in the season. I think so, yes. But after Consul of Joban leaves... Serverland gets a message. It's from the last location of the Liberator, and it simply says, Travis is on the planet X-Bar. So we'll now move into what I'm calling Act 2 of the story, which is the X-Bar stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is all the stuff on the Liberators setting up the journey to X-Bar and then arriving on X-Bar. Yep. Now, when we discussed... Horizon Richard, we talked about the fact that we were seeing the very first stirrings of idiot filler. Yes. And that is a regretful path down which the character is starting to go. We see a lot more of it here. I'm going to just give the two examples that really stood out to me. The first comes in straight away where Villa is asleep on duty. When the message comes in, yes. Yes. And then he basically closes his eyes and is sort of dozing when he's captured by Ashton later. And it's just that level of incompetence that Villa shouldn't be capable of. Plus you have the moment where he thinks, well, you know, Travis wanting to join forces actually sounds like a good idea. Yeah, it's just a really dumb comment that just doesn't serve the character well. And when you think about the really sly, canny villain that you said, particularly in early season one, Mm. this is a real misreading of the character. We should also make the note that good old Adrenaline and Soma gets another go. Villa wants a relaxant after they've been through the space battle. (laughs) Yes. So that's, that's a shame, but yeah, as you said, we get a message from Travis, it's one that he knows Aurak can receive and that only Aurak can receive, so it's specially aimed at them, and it's another example of Travis' strategy, in that Travis has arrived at a location first, he has set up a trap, and he wants Blake to move into that so he can close the trap, which is what we've seen from Travis all the way back to seek, locate, destroy consistently. Mm-hmm. So good consistency there. And I guess this time he's got something he knows Blake will definitely have to come for. Yes, which we'll talk about in a moment. The crew recognise that it's an obvious trap. Yes. And, you know, try and talk Blake out of it. Even to the point where Blake says he's going to teleport down by himself. Oh, not again. <laughs> um, you know, because they know how this turns out. Yes, um, why don't they just get everybody on? You know, okay, Villa can work the teleport. The rest of you, get your guns, get a few bombs. Yep. Let's just go down. In, Let's indeed. take Travis out. Avon is obviously immediately... Look, he clearly doesn't care that it's a relative of Blake's. It's just, look, this is an obvious trap. This is going to turn out badly. We should not go. Force Travis's hand. Yes. And so at this point, we get lots of Avon behaving mysteriously. Yes. And Jenna notices that Avon's behaving mysteriously and Kelly thinks she knows what's going on but doesn't say that Avon... It's kind of just all of, hey, audience, 
Avon's behaving mysteriously, but they don't react like a character should. No, it's very much as Avon must have done something. What's he got up his sleeve? What's Avon up to, boys and girls? Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah. There's some slightly better character stuff with Blake. I mean, Blake, again, is very clearly manipulating the crew into taking him to X-Bar. And Avon gets to call him out, but he knows damn well that if things go bad, the crew are going to come and save him. Yes. And look, once again, we need to be very thankful about the regular cast we've got because Gareth Thomas and Paul Darrow, but particularly Gareth Thomas, makes those scenes credible Mm. in a way that a lesser actor just wouldn't. And that does keep this episode ticking along. Because otherwise it really would fall apart. Better still, don't go at all. At least don't go alone, not again. Let one of us go down with you. Are you volunteering? Me. Thanks for the offer anyway. Wait. Why? We're approaching orbit. At least let me make sure that there are no Federation pursuit ships around. Why should there be? Why shouldn't there be? Zen, any sign of a pursuit ship? Negative on main detectors. Satisfied. What happens if they arrive while you're down there? Then you'll have to leave me down there. That could happen. I know. What's the matter with you, Avon? I'm just reminding you, that's all. You are still assuming that we will risk our lives for you. On maybe some of the negative side of the characterisation, the script obviously wants to make out that Jenna's a bit jealous and whatever when Blake mentioned there's somebody who meant a lot to him once. Yes, well, let's segue that into the inner discussion. (laughs) And again, not something we're going to dwell on, but we have to basically talk about how... I'm not sure here whether it's a case of what the script writer intended and what the director did are simply not in sync or whether the script was never quite in sync with itself. Well, I'm sincerely hoping it's the former because if it's not, that actually is kind of creepy. It is significantly problematic. So the concern we have here is that Inger is Black's cousin. Yes. Now, already we're into Shelbyville territory with that one. <laughs> uh, we'll, leave, we'll, we'll, we'll park that, you know, personal judgments and everything. And marry our cousins. We get Blake doing the whole she meant a lot to me once. Jenna is clearly playing it as jealousy and Blake is clearly, particularly later in the episode, allows it to play that way. She's obviously a bit pissy here, but yes, when we get to the end of the episode, she is clearly extremely jealous. Yes. The actress playing her is 30, yes. but she is overtly playing it considerably younger. Now, given that this all happened a long time ago, you kind of have to ask how old was she when Blake met her and meant something to him. When we then meet Ushton, he makes a point of saying that Blake has grown. So Blake clearly was a teenager when he met Inga. Yes. So look, to make the point, the script on the one hand wants Blake to have had a romantic relationship with Inga, Mm. but on the other hand has the characters too young for that to be anything other than problematic. Either they were both children, or Mm. Blake was a young adult and Inga was uh, a minor. And, look, I don't want to go into a lot of depth with this. We have to call it out. We have to say that it's a problem. I'm willing to just call it a mess. As I said earlier, I hope that it is really just the director perhaps not quite picking up on what the script intended. As as I say, I don't want to drill on it, but it is a big mess in the middle of this script. Who exactly is Inga? She meant a lot to me once. And the other thing I noticed at this point is that there is a lot of cool model shots, which are nice, but I suspect the episode was underrunning at this mm-hmm. point. So we meet Blake's uncle, Ashton, uh, who does call him Rog, which is a nice touch. Yep. I'm assuming Ashton is his first name, but... No, he's like Cher. <laughs> he just has one name. <laughs> now, it's explained that X-Bar is basically a 
low-grade version of Cygnus Alpha. Mm. It's a penal colony, and, and I, I like that. Again, we're doing world-building. It makes sense that the Federation would have penal colonies. I mean, why pay money to keep people in prisons yep. when you can just dump them on a dump of a planet? And Well, I suppose, though, having said that, they clearly maintained a presence here, whereas on Cygnus Alpha, it is really just herd the prisoners off the ship and fly off. But... Yeah, so there's some implication that back in the day, they maybe used the prisoners as a slave labour force mm. to do mining or agriculture or something, yeah. but... That well, we did we did say in the Cygnus Alpha discussion that look, you know, maybe there is something else going on there, and Brian Bless is just the HR manager, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, again, there's an implication here that really isn't explored. When I remembered watching this, I was always of the view that Ashton was overtly a political prisoner, mm. but it's actually not stated anywhere in the script. No, before we know, he was just a regular shoplifter or something. I don't know whether there's meant to be a subtle indication here that Blake came from a family of rebels mm. or that Ushan is just the black sheep who did a bit of a company fraud or something and, and got sent up to... there. And I guess that in the by extension was Inga sentenced there with him. Is she a native of the planet and born there? Yeah, yeah. It's very rushed and very careless. Mm. And I think this is where I kind of want to have the discussion about how this is good adjacent. In that you look at the ideas in that, this idea of let's look at a penal colony in the Federation and how that justice system works. Let's look at this idea that, hey, actually Blake did have an uncle who was a bit of a political rebel and yep. he got sent away. And this is actually what inspired Blake to go on to his thing or you know, called out some corruption in the Federation and was quietly disposed of. Yeah. There are so many good stories you could have done with this. It. Yeah. And it's reaching for that. And it's just a shame that it doesn't quite get there. And I just think that it didn't get a lot of attention. I think Alan Pryor doesn't quite get the Blake 7 universe. Yeah. Uh, so I can see a really good version of this script. It's just not the one we got. <laughs> so I just need to make a point here that before Blake goes down, Avon overtly attempts to stop Blake. He says, you are not to go down. And Blake yep. says, I'm going anyway, uh, which is a escalation of the tension. Avon is normally willing to needle and suggest mm. and sort of like, I wouldn't be doing that. Here he says, you are bloody stupid to be doing this. Yes, and I think it's also part of Avon being mysterious that he's clearly trying to stall for time. Yes, very much so. The final point I'll make regarding X-Bar is that the lack of any extras doesn't help. No, you don't see any of the other population, true. Something that Blake 7 is normally very good at is world building, mm. and the lack of extras on this doesn't help to make this feel like a real world, which is a shame. <laughs> And I'll just mention, although it doesn't really fall into this act, it does end with the scene of Serverland racing to X-Bar, which is cool. We then get this extra long scene with her arguing with a mutoid, which is Isn't. clearly just padding. However, Blake is on X-Bar, and it's time for us to meet Travis, who has some friends. <laughs> Since we're now talking about Travis, we discover he's holed up in an old communication tower which has an oxygen plant. Now, I'm assuming that's because they've gone through the whole thing a few minutes before about um, atmosphere thins out at altitude yes. and stuff, so anybody in the base would need a, a steady air supply. And Travis has some crimos with him. Yes, so this is the other discussion we need to have. What the hell are crimos? Yes. Now, Richard, tell me if I'm wrong here, but the episode seems to be implying or assuming that we as an audience know what this is because we just get their crimos. Yes, you know what they can do, don't you? It's like, I don't. No, well, the cast clearly do. Tell me about Travis. Well, he turned up here six days ago with men and guns. How many men? Four. 
Crimos. Crimos? Well, I've never seen them before, but that's what they were, all right. Criminal psychopaths. So I hear. You know what they can do, don't you? Mm. One possible thing is there was an abandoned script a little earlier in the season by Pip and Jane Baker called Death Squad, mm -hmm. where the Federation were manipulating violent criminals to become even more aggressive through drugs and mind alteration. So look, whether it's an extension of that idea, perhaps that was in the notes Alan Pryor was given for how the season's progressing. Yes, I mean, we're told that Cribos are, quote, criminal psychopaths, mm. but we get no other explanation whatsoever, and it's just... No, other than Moloch saying... I have a high intelligence quotient, but I enjoy inflicting pain, and that I am a true criminal, so don't be stupid. Do as I say, show me the flight deck. They're basically one actor and three stuntmen in sort of rubber suits, but very strange. I mean, basically, it's just to give Travis some heavies. It is that clearly aren't mutoids. Yes. And that's the question as well. Given that at the end of trial, Travis is overtly sent off with a mutoid crew, mm. you kind of wonder why they wouldn't just have that crew. But, of course, moving on, Blake naturally decides that he has to go up to the tower and try and rescue Inga. And, of course, it's then revealed that Ashton <gasps> is a traitor. Yes, we get that big twist so that Travis knows that Blake's coming up and he traps him. That man trap they use is actually quite nasty, I've got to say. It is, but we then go through, obviously, the couple of minutes where everybody's captured. Yes. Blake rolls down a hill and then there just happens to be a bear trap basically at the bottom of it. Yes, Avon stops to talking to his communicator where there just happens to be a net. Yes, he just happens to stop right on where the net is. Yeah. yeah. If any part of this episode particularly suffers from, I think, the lack of time mm. to do the, the location filming, it's this stuff. This, this is really badly done. Oh, I think there's worse to come. Well, let's have the <laughs> Travis conversation then. Yep. We have defended Brian Croucher in the last few episodes. We've talked about him having some very good stuff. He had some good stuff in Weapon. You know, he had some very good moments in Trial. Yes, he did. We, we really did praise Pressure Point. You know, we talked yep. about some good stuff. This is terrible. It is. I don't quite know really what he's going for. I will say that the bit where, he, where he's got Blake tied up at the table, and he talks about, you know, he understands what shame means. Futile gesture. The girl's a fool. She actually wants to die. Can you understand that, Blake? Can you? Oh, yes. I understand shame very well. I thought was actually reasonably good, because you notice he's still wearing his uniform and his rank or service badge or whatever yes. it is. So he clearly, in his own mind, feels he's still part of the service. Yes, I also really enjoyed the bit where Inga tries to escape, mm. and the crimos go after him, but Travis is just sitting there, very relaxed, he's got his face on his hand, mm. and, and he's just like, Look, I know she's not getting away, why would I get excited about yeah. this? And he plays it really calm, that's a really nice moment. Yep. So again, there are good moments in here, which implies to me that it must again be a directorial choice, where clearly V. Lorimer was just saying, no Brian, bigger, bigger, just, just chew the scenery, just go for it, and this <laughs> George, is what he got. <laughs> George Lucas, faster and more intense. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume that's what it is, because as I say, and as you've said, there are moments there where Karachi gives a very subtle mm. performance. Now, there's not many of them, but they're there, which I suspect means that that's what he was trying to do and just get yeah. told, no, you're here to be the pantomime villain. Either that or un unless, look, this was, you know, five to ten on, on the last night of recording and it's just, yep. look, but this is the take we have to use. Because after we've sort of talked about that, we, of course, get to the most infamous scene in the episode. Yes. Yes. Now, I'll make the point very quickly... 
it has been assumed up to this point, not least by Blake, that Travis is after Blake. In mm-hmm. fact, what Travis wants is the Liberator. Yes. He wants to be able to go on the run and he wants a good ship to do it. Yep. So this whole thing has been a lead up to basically Travis trying to get himself on board the Liberator. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that leads to... The word, the word, the word, word. Turn on the, Ooh, the word, the word, the word. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most quoted scenes, I think. Yeah. It's been quoted many a night down the pub after midnight. <laughs> what are you doing? Now, you see Moloch has a bracelet on. All you have to do is talk. Demonstrate. Tell us the word. I'm saying nothing. The word. Tell us the word. I'm sorry. We didn't hear the word, did we, Moloch? I'm not helping you. Never. Now, for the last time. Tell us the word. The word. The word. Switch the bracelet on. The word. The word. The word. Tell it more. I told you, tell it more. Having said that, Michael Keating is great in that scene he really looks terrified absolutely so let's actually talk about this scene because you're right it's not just terrible there are good things in that michael keating is very good we do get a moment of villa actually trying to do that whole brave thing like you're going to kill me anyway so just get on with it yeah that's a nice moment yeah he looks terrified Mm. probably more terrified than he really should be given what he's encountered before and again that's a shame but yeah brian croucher just turns it up to 11 he he does really That said, though, he does get Moloch up onto the ship. Mm-hmm. The big fault in this plan, though, is that he only sends up one crew, yes. whereas he should be sending up two. It's almost like that kind of, you know, that problem with the farmer and the fox, the wheat and the, <laughs> and the chicken. Okay, uh, you can't take the grain first because you can't leave the fox and the chicken together. Fox and the chicken together? <laughs> Bloodbath. Yeah, I know. Um, you can't leave the chicken with the grain. Uh, um, Hello, I'm a chicken. Thank you, Tim, for leaving me with my favourite food. Yes, I was saying, Gareth, you can't do that, all right? It's like, well, if I send one criminal up, then they have yep. come back with a prisoner. But if I, no, no, so you send two criminals up, one comes back with a prisoner, the other... Like, yeah. Yeah. I will say, James Coyle is actually really well cast as Moloch, because he's suitably quite creepy. He, he's really, really good with a very small part. He does yeah. a lot. Yeah, no, I've got a lot of time for that. I quite like the way that Jenna and Kelly are... Uh, written at this point because they actually do get to make some fairly good calls when mm. they're up there jenner is very much no don't forget we control the liberator we mm. still have that ace to play nothing of course it's a trap let's go down no we'll wait for what it's travis's move we still control the liberator a sitting target not for him not for anybody where are you going i'm going to clear the neutron blasters for firing well, what are you going to fire at anything that moves they're actually treated yeah. with a bit of credibility. Frankly, Jenna and Kelly get a bit more credibility than Villa does in this. Yeah, that's true. They obviously overcome Moloch and teleporting back out into space. Which, again, having set up this character, having got a really good actor to play him, he's on the Liberator for about four minutes, and then he's just teleported off. Mm. And what did Moloch expect to happen? He was going to take Kelly down to the surface... And Jenna was just going to bring him back up again? It is that idea that by threatening your friend, you'll do what I want. But I guess it saves him from being crushed by the polystyrene rocks. So look, maybe <laughs> he got out of it lightly. But So they, they deal with Moloch and they reuse the effect from Sigma Alpha of someone being teleported out into space. Yep. 
Interestingly, given that Kelly wasn't wearing a bracelet, Jenna mm. could just have activated the teleport at any moment. Indeed. But never mind. Which brings us to the big denouement of the episode. I have a note here. We're about eight and a half minutes from the end, so it's time for Ashton to suddenly change sides again. <laughs> <laughs> Look, he does. They have a, I think, a well-scripted but poorly executed set of things. But they obviously have this cool idea that it's almost sort of like, you know, Vietnam War. Like, okay, Travis and the Crimos have got the guns and the tech, mm. but because Ashton's a native and he can use the land and he's got Indeed. the traps. Like, that's what they're going for. And that's a nice idea. I like that as an idea. Yeah, but it's done on, you know, 1970s BBC with their timing and budget, so... And remember, all of this stuff would have been remount. Quite a bit of it. If you watch, you can pick, I think, between what's... Sure, but to the extent that Ashton is in most of this... Yes, indeed. This this stuff would have had to have been reshot. And so, therefore, there are going to be effects used in here that clearly were the second go where there's just no budget left. You've spent the money to do it once, and now you've got to go back and do it all again with no No, for sure. I do have to raise the point, once he's knocked Travis out, why does Ashton just not kill Travis? Or at least put him in the sealed room? I mean, you go through this whole thing where he drags him outside and rolls him down a cliff because he knows that Travis still has a contract. Yes. I mean, and, and, you know, we are into the Megatron, oh, I'm not going to get off to the Prime this time because if I do, there's no series. You know? <laughs> we, we are there. This whole thing sort of wraps up very quickly. It's badly shot. I like what they're going for here. They just don't have the money to pull it off and clearly don't have the time to pull it off either. No. The ending is a real problem. Probably the worst scene, frankly, for me, of all the episode is that final scene with Blake, Inger and Jenna where Blake and Inga kiss, and... Um, yeah, like, Jenna's just giving her the evil eye in the background. Yeah, yeah, it's really like Playboy Blake, and it just doesn't work for its character. All right, Jenna. Ashton and Inga don't come along, because they don't have a contract for the next episode, so they have to stay on the planet. <laughs> yeah, why is it too late for Ashton? Is he sort of, like, institutionalised? He's just been an ex-bar so long now he couldn't live anywhere else? You'll want me to think about it, Richard. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> and they go on from there... We have kicked this last 10 minutes or so quite a bit. Look, deservedly, frankly, but I emphasise I like what they're trying to do. They just can't do it. I was a little bit harsher on that. We've got to about 10 minutes to go. I don't know how to end this, so let's just run around in the quarry for a bit, <laughs> killing the crimos. But, go on. but I will finish on a positive note and say the final scene with Servalan and Travis yes. is very good. Mm-hmm. Servalan is very canny. And again, this has been set up well. We've seen earlier in the episode, Servalan regrets that she doesn't still have Travis. She mm. wishes she could still have Travis. Mm. She has now found a way to have Travis, but unofficially. Yep. So that's quite clever. Travis is just now obsessed by Blake. And if Servalan is the vehicle by which he can do that, mm-hmm. he's willing to do the deal with the devil. And again, for all the problems with Crouch's performance in this, and there are mm. problems, him playing against Jacqueline Pierce in that scene which clearly was actually done at night and they've got a bit more time, Mm. that is a much better performance. Uh, Yes, it is. I wanted the Liberator. I thought it must be something like that. Are you and I still enemies? Officially, yes. Unofficially, you lead me to Blake whenever you can. If you help me get him, I'll see you officially listed as dead. There's no one as free as a dead man. So again, how much of this we can lay at the foot of Via Lorimore and how much of that 
we can kind of excuse because just the time, the pressure. And let's face it, the fact that these people would have been doing filming and you know living in the local pub overnight mm. doing the location film with a guy who's you know, dead the next day. Like, yeah, I get that that would throw the cast off, mm. and particularly the director who's got to pick up the pieces. So there is good stuff in this episode, but it is a mess. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> So now we've dealt with the plot. Richard, any production notes for us? Yeah, just a couple of quick ones. We did mention, obviously, at the top that Duncan Lamont passed away quite suddenly between the location filming and the studio recordings. There was apparently some serious discussion around abandoning the script altogether and just doing a really quickly written studio-bound story. But I think that the logistics of that obviously got in the way. Ashton was recast twice. He was first replaced by an actor called Ronald Lewis, uh, who I must admit wasn't someone I knew. He was apparently a reasonably well-known film actor in the 50s and early 60s, but I think he sort of dropped off the radar a bit by the time this was made. Okay. Um, but he, unfortunately, also turned out to be rather unwell and wasn't able to do the running around on location. So, obviously, we then recast again with John Abenary. Now, yes, they did go back out and do a day or two back out on location again with John Abenary. And as I said a couple of times during the episode, I think you can see where they've been spliced together. Mm-hmm. There is an anecdote around this one, and we haven't given a hello this week to Making Blake 7. Yes. This was not, probably for fairly obvious reasons, a favourite of the cast. <laughs> Gareth Thomas in particular was quite unhappy with this one. And Making Blake 7 has the anecdote, the rolling the polystyrene rocks in particular, I think for him was a real... Down point, unfortunately, because they had to remount it, it meant he had to do it a second time as well. So, Yes, this is the episode where I can kind of imagine Gareth Thomas doing that Alan Rickman bit from Galaxy Quest. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think probably with this one, really, I suspect it probably got to the point, look, let's just get this done and then we can all just move on and forget about it. Whilst I don't regret any of the comments we've made about the poor mm. stuff in this episode, we do need to emphasise we get it. Yeah, for sure. One final note is the location filming was done at Betchworth Quarry, which had previously been Saurian Major and Cephalon. Yes, I did think it looked like at least Saurian Major. I did recognise that one. Yep, and we will see it again to progress to the rest of the series. Excellent. But there you go. On to our regular segment. <laughs> So, our first regular segment, as always, is guest cast. And for an episode we didn't get a lot out of, there is a very credible guest cast. Actually, the guest cast in this is really good. Very well qualified. The lead guest is, of course, John Abenary as the recast Ushton. Mm -hmm. He is very much one of those guys in terms of British television. Yep. Huge number of credits, dating back to Children of the New Forest in 1955. He did do four Doctor Whos. Mm-hmm. He is in that wonderful classic Fury from the Deep as Van Lychens. Lost classic. Lost yep. classic. He is in one of my favourite stories, Ambassadors of Death, as General Carrington. He is in the uh, more interesting role of the green-painted Ranquin in The Power <laughs> of Kroll. And he is Ralton in Death to the Daleks. Mm-hmm. He was in the ongoing series The Rackety Street Gang from 1960, The Baron, Last of the Mohicans. No, right. Callan. He was in the 1975 Legend of Robin Hood and 18 episodes of the 1984 Robin Hood. Yes, well, that's probably, I think, maybe now where he's best known because uh, he was Hearn the Hunter in Robin of Sherwood. Yes, and for genre fans, he was in 17 episodes of Terry Nation Survivors 
And you may recognise him as Rumor's dad in an episode of Red Dwarf. Oh, yes. He's only in for about two minutes, but it's a very good two minutes. Yes. Son, what are you doing here? I'm sorry to barge in on you and your uh, officer chummies, but... Yes? I just wanted to tell you. Yes? I just wanted to say... Yes? I just wanted to say... You're a total smithead. <laughs> of course, playing Ashton's daughter, Inga, is Judy Buxton. Now, she is in quite a bit of stuff from sort of the early 70s onwards. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of stage work on her resume as well. And she actually, pretty much after this had finished, went to the Royal Shakespeare Company for three years. Okay. Probably not off the back of this, maybe. but Because uh, <laughs> I have to say, she really does not have a lot to do in this at all. She is trying her best with what she's got and has clearly been asked to play much younger than she's comfortable doing. But it's a terrible part. I mean, yeah. they refer to her as the girl most of the episode. Inga certainly does not pass the Bechdel test. Uh, no, and everyone else is wearing thermal suits and they're wrapped up in furs and stuff. She's wearing like a sleeveless top. It's like the penal colony version of a prom dress or something. It is. And, you know, really her contribution to the story is, is to basically be slapped, tortured and chased around. And so, generally look gooey-eyed and dull-eyed over Blake. Yeah, yeah, it's not a very good role. But yeah, I thought she was quite good with what she had. One of her major roles, just getting back on track, is she was Dennis Waterman's wife in a comedy series called On the Up mm-hmm. in the 80s. Several episodes of By the Sword Divided, which was quite a big series yes. during the mid-80s. She's in a lot of guest parts in other things, like she's in the Sweeney, she's an episode of Lovejoy. Chance in a Million with uh, Simon Callow. Oh, wow, that's going back. Yeah, that is going back. That's, I think, one of the first things he did. Yeah. And she's still working today. As I said, a lot of stage work, I think, on the resume these days, but... Yep, I just want to mention two roles that I'm quite fond of. She was in a lovely little sitcom called Next of Kin with Penelope Keith and William Gaunt, which yeah. is one of the more forgotten Penelope Keith sitcoms, but one oh. I really like. And a movie I'm very fond of called Get Real, which is one of her very few movie roles. Right, Okay. Probably one of the more venerable guest cast in the whole of the series, let's be honest, mm-hmm. is Kevin Stoney, who plays Councillor Joban, mm-hmm. another one of those faces. Yep. Again, in Doctor Who, in a couple of classic roles. I mean, Doctor Who fans will be very familiar with him because he played Magic Mavic Chen in The Dalek's <laughs> Master Plan and Tobias Vaughn in Invasion, Yeah. which are two classic stories. And I mean, when he's the villain in both those stories, they are very well regarded. They are. I mean, look, he's also Tyrum in Revenge of the Cybermen. Yes. We, we might just uh, side past that one. Yes, that's right. His credits go back to 1950 with The mm-hmm. Gentle Gunman. He was in Ivanhoe, The Secret Kingdom. He was in the 1958 Adventures of Robin Hood, in which he was in four episodes playing four different roles. Right. Genre fans, there's a lot of stuff here. The Prisoner, The Avengers, Doomwatch. He's in The Tomorrow People Story of the Vanishing Earth, which is the one with the spy drone, (laughs) (laughs) which I had to throw in here. He's in the 1975 Legend of Robin Hood. I, Claudius, and right through to Inspector Morse in 1993. But look, a huge number of credits. Now, the one crimo with the speaking part uh, is Moloch. (laughs) Who we have praised. Yes, indeed. I thought he was actually pretty good. Yes. Which is played by James Coyle. He's in quite a few things from sort of about 25 years from the early 70s. He's in an episode of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And he was also in a a movie or a telly movie a couple of years later starring Charlton Heston. (laughs) Of all people, as Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Yeah. 
I, I think probably his other big genre credit is in Tripods. Yes. Where he plays one of the guards in the second season when they get into the city. I think so, yes. Yeah. But he's in quite a other well-known series. Like He's in uh, Duchess of Duke Street. He's in The Secret Army, The Professionals, The Voyage of Charles Darwin. Who remembers that? He's in Shoestring. He's also in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Oh, yes, he is too. Mm. Yes. I'll also mention Wurzel Gummidge. Right, yes. And he was in the 1975 Legend of Robin Hood. Right. He also is this week's Rumpole link. Yes, is, I was hoping you were going to say Rumpole, that. As indeed is our next guest cast member. That's right. So look, Andrew Robertson plays the anonymous space commander. He's only got a couple of scenes, so I won't mention too much, but... He was in Rumpole. He was a regular in the series One by One, which I was very fond of, which is the... Uh, oh, the one set in the zoo, yes. Yep, yep. And he, of course, played Mr. Fibuli in uh, The Pirate Planet, <laughs> which is a Doctor Who story. Yep. Roughly contemporaneous Yes, with would be with this. He's also in things like The Secret Army, Adam Adamant Lives, you know, Eden Line, and All Creatures Great and Small as well. So, yeah. Yeah, lots of cast with lots of credits in this mm-hmm. one. And, and, yeah, they do their best. Yeah. One final note, just uh, to round this segment out. Duncan Lamont, who was obviously originally cast as Ashton, he, again, was a very established actor by the time he would have done this. He has credits back to the early 1950s. He is uh, Victor Caroon, the astronaut in the very first Quatermass TV serial. He's also in the Hammer film version of Quatermass in the Pit. His Doctor Who link is, he's also in Death to the Daleks. He's Galloway. He's oh, that's him. Actually, yeah. He would have been very good in the role. Yeah, he would have been, I think. Oh, there you go. He's in quite a bit of stuff. He does a lot of movies. He was in The 39 Steps. He was in Ben-Hur, The Battle of Britain. He's in quite a lot of well-remembered TV series as well, mm. like Danger Man, another one who was in Callum, Poldark, Robin's Nest. Oh, uh, wow. For sitcoms. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so... There you go. And one final note, I'm not going to go into much detail here. They were actually playing the Crimos. I did sort of make the throwaway remark that they were just a few stuntmen. They were actually quite well-known UK stuntmen doing some of those parts, including Dinny Powell and Rocky Taylor. But we might save the stunt performer discussion until we get to a little bit later in the season mm. when I think all of these guys are back and are joined by a few more well-known stunt performers. Yes. All yes. right. We'll save that off then. Yeah. We'll move on to the Liberator databank. A couple of little things I wanted to mention here. We've talked about Travis's ongoing arc. Mm-hmm. We introduced Crimos into the world building of Blake 7. Yep. Penal Planets continues. Uh, a technical detail, it is established here that the Liberator's standard by 12 is equal to time distort 20 yep. for the pursuit ships. Now, the mutoids here, are these meant to be a new generation of mutoids, or are they just mutoids without their hats, or...? I don't know. See, maybe there's a difference between military mutoids and pilot mutoids or something, perhaps, Yeah, maybe. Or... Because I think the mutoid that comes down with Servalon has got the old-style costume. Yeah, she has. The actress who played that is actually in Pressure Point, again, playing a mutoid. And I just need to mention, for Star Wars fans, we have Blue Milk. Yes, this, I did. This... I had that note, too. <laughs> We did mention at the top, Avon notes that the Liberator's detector shield is broken and he's looking for parts to fix it. And indeed, that the Federation have obviously come up with a similar idea, which makes Avon quite disappointed as he was rather hoping to sell them the idea. (laughs) (laughs) We'll now move into, look, it was the 1970s. A couple of points we can make here about the effects were very 1970s, but I think we've spoken about that. Something that I wanted to mention is just in regard to the concept of Crimo's and criminal psychopaths, and to sort of look at where we are in the 1970s. Now, we've mentioned before the Manson trials happening in the early 70s, yeah. and in fact, some stuff happening not long before this was shot, and Kasabian being yeah. one of the references we spoke about in Pressure Point. The Ted Bundy stuff is going on a lot at this point. His first mm-hmm. trial was in 1975. In 1977, he has his two escapes. There are further murders in 78. 
In fact, four days before this went to air, he was actually caught for the final time. Right. So Ted Bundy was very much in the yeah, news at okay. this stage. The 22nd of December, 1978, so a few months before this was aired, was when John Wayne Gacy actually oh, yeah, okay. gives his confession to the police. Yeah. So the 1970s, we do have this sort of escalation in these real psychopathic serial killers yeah, okay. that was becoming a part of, not the culture, but certainly the media, particularly Moloch's line about, I have a very high intelligence quotient. I did sort of get, now whether it's subliminal or it's intentional, mm. Ted Bundy vibes out of that. Yep. So this idea that people are beyond criminal, they're actually psychopaths, mm. is something that really comes out and comes mm. across in the 70s. So yep. I thought that was an important part of the background. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. May, maybe give some uh, credibility to the criminals that you doesn't come across on screen. the script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that brings us then to what happens next. Now, at the end of the episode, and we did make the point that they don't have contracts for next week, so Inga and Ashton elect to stay on X-Bar. Yes. They do make the note that they weren't able to get into the tower, and now that Travis has conveniently broken in there for them, there's a stockpile of food in there. So I guess their intention now is to try and make a community out of uh, all the people just trying to survive on the planet. That we didn't see. That we never saw, (laughs) yes. Serverland and Travis obviously are working together again. And one note I did have here... And we sort of touched on this during the general discussion. Serverland's encounter with Joe Barn, again, putting a bit of extrapolation in, we do see how that ultimately turns out as we get near the end of the season. We now get into what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Yes, so I've got a couple of examples, one of which is his response after Blake says, looks as though the Federation has developed a shield themselves. Kelly replies, yes, well, they got very close before we saw them. To which Avon gets the line... And that is the most depressing aspect of the whole affair. I was rather hoping to sell them the idea. Yeah, there's a couple of good put-downs for Villa, where they're talking about possibly joining forces with Travis. Villa says, he said we should pull our resources, and I still say he might have a point. You turn your back on him, you might find it between your shoulder blades. Yes, I had that one, along with the slightly more acerbic, where Villa says, yes, yes, I'm freezing. Well, freeze in silence, <laughs> which isn't a great or witty line, but Paul Darrow just delivers it so well. <laughs> he does. And when they're locked in the sealed room, we do get Villa, what have I done to deserve this? How long a list would you like? <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, though, it's not really an Avon episode, this one, so... No, it's not, but even in a weaker episode where it doesn't get much, there's always a few gems out there. So, Richard, this has been my episode to take us through. And it's now time for our Player of the Week, so I invite you to go first. Who was your Player of the Week for Hostage? Right, now I am going to start by saying this was quite difficult, <laughs> uh, as I don't think any of the regulars really come out of this that well. I will give an honourable mention to James Coyle again. As we said, I thought he did do quite a bit with what was a very small part. It's great to see Kevin Stoney. Yes. But I think I probably have to go with Jacqueline Pierce this week, because I think the two scenes with her are probably the two best scenes of the episode. I more or less agree with that. I certainly had both Jacqueline Pierce and Kevin Stoney as my honourable mentions. I'm going to give it to John Abenieri, just because given what yeah. he had to do, he yeah. actually comes in and gives a very credible, workable yeah. performance. And so, look, it's not a classic performance, mm. but it is very solid for all the circumstances. Indeed, given the pressure there, so. he would have been under. Yeah. yeah, but look, I think between us we agree on what the best yeah. scene was. Yep. So, look, that brings us to the end. Once again, I hope we haven't put you off with kicking this too hard. The reality is we haven't enjoyed it, and we're not going mm. to mince words about that, but I can see why it happened, and I see what could have been better. Mm. And I guess it's perhaps a shame because 
although we've disagreed on a couple of the episodes, we have had a very strong season so far. As I said during the discussion, I think for this one really it probably got to a point where it's just let's just get this done and then we can put this behind us and move on. Yes. And I certainly intend to do just the same. And we will do that. Also, we'll look forward to our next episode where we will be talking about Countdown, which I think we're both looking forward to. Yes, I am very much looking forward to Countdown. So, Richard, this is one of yours to take us through, and I know when we divided the series up, this is one that you asked for. Indeed. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Very fond of Countdown. So until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Albion. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7.